0: Good morning, Koa. Um, Just as a reminder, if you are uh, a regular or if you're new for the first time, uh, one of the reasons we do scripture reading in other languages is because um, not everyone here uh, English is their primary language. And one of the most unreached communities right now and uh, disconnected with church is the hearing impaired community. Um, There are very few churches that are taking that seriously. And so even in an attempt to uh, value those who God has created in his image, but who struggle with hearing, unlike the rest of us, um, we, we wanted to have um, Judy uh, read in sign language today. So um, yeah, God is always aware, uh, even when we're not, of those who are, are far um, from him or who are unable to worship with uh, the rest of his people. I'd love for us to take a moment and pray this morning, a lot going on, um, not only in our lives, your life, my life, but in the world around us, around the globe, and so I'd love for us to just take a few moments and pray. Fathers, we're still before you, fill our minds and our hearts. It is so good for us to recenter ourselves to realign our thoughts and our affections on you. We need you to help us do this, God, because so often we are distracted. We are caught up with our own circumstances or the news cycle or something else around us, God, and we we need to see you more than we need to see any of those things. Is only when we see you clearly, only when we are, um, our hearts and our minds are aligned with you, can we actually do any good in this world for you and in your name. And God, today, um, as we gather, there are um, believers in places like Ukraine who, who face war. There are Christians in Israel and Christians among the Palestinian people who face war. Lord, even as I heard this week about Palestinian Christians and Jewish Christians worshiping together in a church and being forsaken by both their communities, Lord, my heart goes out to them. Lord, surely they are picturing a new kingdom, a beautiful kingdom, a kingdom that we can't wait for this world to see. God, we need an end to war. We need an end to violence. We need an end to hatred and racism. We need an end to the injustice that plagues not only on the other side of the world, but our own lives and our own backyards. So Jesus, would you move today, transform, renew, bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives as it is in heaven, And as we turn our attention to your word now to to hear from a a challenging text, God, I pray that we would not brush it off, but receive it, hear it, believe it, and that Jesus, you would come and clean the temple of our hearts even today. In your great name we pray, amen. So uh, I've mentioned this for a few weeks, but the sermon notes are now officially on the app from now on, should be on the home page on the app when you open it. So if English is not your, sec- your uh, primary language and it would be helpful for you to follow along with my incoherent notes, you are welcome to open this up. <laughs> they're not as uh, that incoherent, but uh, if it's helpful for you, you can open them up. But they're also there for you if you're uh, in community group this week and um, or preparing for community group, they're there and available for anyone. Last week, we saw the first part of John 2, the image of this beautiful festival, right? This wedding festival that was a week long and Jesus celebrating and joyfully engaging and uh, in this event. And then at a moment where it looks like everything was lost, he provides uh, wine, like not just wine, but an abundance of wine and not just a lot of wine, but really good wine because he wants to celebrate this moment. He's picturing the kingdom that he's bringing in of, of joy and renewal, um, today we see a different Jesus. <laughs> if you didn't pick up in that in the text that was read a few moments ago, um, last week was a lot of joy and celebrating and, and this week is Jesus angry. And I realize anger is not an emotion we tend to associate with Jesus or think about Jesus, but we have to understand Jesus was as human as you and I are. Um, in the sense of he was a fully orbed human being. He experienced all the emotions that you and I experience. The difference is Jesus's anger anger was righteous. You see, there's righteous anger and unrighteous anger. What we do is unrighteous anger most of the time, uh, even if it starts righteously. But what Jesus demonstrated was a righteous anger, um uh, there's two interpretations of this passage that I would I just want to throw out that I've heard over the last probably 20 years and they're kind of extremes. In the one extreme pictures Jesus here uh almost like you know like Rambo. It's like Delta Force Jesus shows up in the temple and he's just you know kicking butt and taking names and turn over tables and yelling at people and whipping them and you know he's just ah you know and, and so that becomes the excuse for you and I to get really angry and turn over tables and yell at people as long as we can justify some reason for it right? Even if it's a good reason, we get to do whatever we want because Jesus was angry here and he turned over tables and yelled at people and drove them out of the temple. So we get to be angry and do that as well. The other extreme is that I don't really like this picture of Jesus, so I kind of ignore it. And I just kind of picture Jesus walking through the temple gently and passively asking people to consider if they would feel like moving their money-changing tables out and if they feel like it, you know. Um, and, And the problem is neither one of those images of Jesus really capture the the Jesus of this passage. We're, we're importing our ideas and what we think about Jesus rather than seeing Jesus as the Lion of Judah and the Lamb, right? He has all of these emotions. And I would actually argue that um, there's a picture here of righteous anger for us uh, to consider. Um, some struggle with the idea of God being angry at all, right? I mean, can God be angry? God's love, right? How can God be angry? the same reason a mother or father can get angry. You see, with the capacity to love, the greater the love, the greater the capacity for anger, for anything that hurts or demeans or destroys the object of that love. You want to see, I mean, maybe you're a mom or dad that doesn't do this, but if an adult came up and threatened, especially when my kids are smaller, big enough, they're big enough now they can take care of themselves. Um, and honestly, DJ could beat me up, so he could probably take out anybody who's causing any problems. Uh, <laughs> but but if, uh, if somebody came to one of my kids when they were little, an adult, and threatened them, I'm not going passive bland at that moment. Would you consider please leaving my child alone? No, I'm jumping in between them, and I am like ready to, ready to throw fists, because at that point, I'm protecting what I love. And that is righteous anger. Now, if I beat the person to a pulp, that's probably a little much. But if I'm willing to defend and stand up for uh, what I love, then then that's righteous anger. And that's the picture of, of Jesus here. He loves the temple. He loves the place on earth where God and his people were supposed to meet. And he loves that people were supposed to be able to go there. And people were demeaning it and threatening it and derailing it. The point of this passage is why we see Jesus angry, not necessarily just the actions themselves, and why he cleanses the um, merchants and money changers. This reveals Jesus's passion for God's glory. He cares if God is glorified, and he hates when God is demeaned. And that's the central idea for us today, is that Jesus is passionate about our devotion, he's passionate about the purity of our devotion, that it is purely for God. Everything Jesus did here is because he is zealous for God's glory among God's people. Verse 17, after Jesus had been resurrected later, it says, verse 17, the disciples remembered the Old Testament prophecy, zeal for, the, for your house will consume me. This is, this is a reference back where the disciples Later on in life, look back at this experience and go, oh yeah, we remember this Old Testament prophecy. This is what Jesus was doing. Now, I want to mention briefly before we get into unpacking what it means that Jesus is passionate for our devotion. um, there's, There's two theories about this. If you know the other gospels, if you grew up in church at all, you know this. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a cleansing of the temple as well. But in their gospels, it's in the last week of Jesus's life. In John, we're in John 2. It's not the last week of Jesus' life, if you're wondering. So why? what's the deal here? The other three Gospels put it at the end. John puts it at the beginning. Um, there's questions about this. There's There's two very simple solutions. One is that there were two cleansings, that, that, that there's enough difference in the um, details, there's a little bit of language that's different and things like that, that that maybe there were two cleansings, three years apart. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, entered Jerusalem, cleansed the temple. Three years later, as he was preparing to die, he cleansed it again. That's possible. I, I, I struggle with that one just because it's such a significant event. It would be hard to imagine it happening twice. But the other option is that John is arranging the material from the life of Christ, much like a documentary would today. If you ever watch a documentary, uh, they don't just start at the beginning, do they? You know, they don't, they're not like, well, so-and-so was born in Dallas, Texas, 1984. You know, like, they don't, they don't do that. What do they do? They almost immediately jump to like something big in their life, right? Something later. Why? Because they're, they're trying to orient you. They're trying to entice you. They're trying to help prove something or demonstrate something about this person. And that's what John's doing. John makes no chronological claim if you read this text. It just says he, Jesus entered Jerusalem during the Passover. <clears throat> and there's reason to believe that, Jesus, that John was very intentionally wanted his gospel to start with Jesus kind of dismantling or approaching all of the, the Jewish institutions. Last week was Jewish marriage. This week is Jewish worship in the temple. And he is demonstrating how he is Lord over both. All right, so let's, let's get into this passage then. Jesus is passionate about our pure devotion. We'll see this in his desire for pure worship his desire for an open way for the lost to know God, and his desire for us to believe in him as the new temple of God. We're going to spend more time on the first one because we're going to be orienting to the whole story in the first one, but Jesus desires pure worship of the people of God. After the wedding last week, he went up to Jerusalem to the Passover festival. Uh, the Old Testament commanded that you were um, required to go to uh, Jewish people were required to go to three annual festivals um, in Jerusalem. If you were a male of 12, 12 years or older, uh, Passover was one of those. And it was uh, celebrated the deliverance of Israel from the Egyptian bondage, generally the Exodus. And then in particular, the last night or 10th plague where God said, you know, sacrifice a lamb, put it over your doorpost. And, um, and then uh, the, the angel of death will pass over your house and so that was a, a, an image for them. And it's hard to overestimate how important this was and how important the temple of God was in Jewish worship. If you look back through the Old Testament and you see the, the image and what God was doing in the temple, it begins back in the Garden of Eden where man and God dwelled together. Heaven and earth were intertwined. They were connected. They were completely overlapped. And so people dwelled with God. God dwelled with his people and everything was worship. The, the Garden of Eden was the first temple because God dwelled with his people and everything that happened there worshiped and glorified God. Then we rebelled and we were removed. We had to leave because we no longer deserved. We were living in rebellion against God. We could no longer live in a holy God's presence. There were really two options. You either stay and die forever or you, you leave. And God, what he did was sent us out of the garden with the idea of one day bringing us back in. Now, what we see in uh, Moses' time was the beginning of the construction of, of a tent that among the people of God, as they were traveling after, they had, uh, after the exodus... Um, the people of God had a tent that was to be called the, the tabernacle. And this was to symbolize the worship of God and God's presence among them. And the tabernacle was right in the middle of the camp of all of the tribes. So all the tribes had their own designated areas around the tabernacle. And this was God's presence. And if you read the descriptions of the tabernacle, they're beautiful. There are a lot of trees painted or imaged. There are a lot of flowers. There are a lot of fruit. Sounds like a garden, And that's exactly what they were doing, was demonstrating the beginning of God bringing Eden back into the world. But remember, if you know your story at all, God didn't like hang out there all day and people just walk in and go, hey, you know, like there was a whole process of even approaching the sacrificial system and only the high priest could go in once a year into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was the symbol of God's presence. And only then once a year after having cleansed themselves, could they offer sacrifices for all the other people to, 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 that God would continue to dwell among them. Fast forward, King Solomon said, we need a building. Like he had the vision and David had the vision and Solomon, his son built the temp- tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem as a permanent building for God. Basically now God's people were in God's land that he had given them and his, God's presence was gonna be with them. Again, the temple, if you read the descriptions, sounds like a garden. All these beautiful things all over the place. The temple was destroyed in 586 when the Babylonians came in and raised the city to the ground and destroyed the temple. And then following that, Ezra, the prophet, and his buddy Nehemiah, they, they were rebuilding Jerusalem. Ezra rebuilt the temple. And over the next four centuries, that was torn down and rebuilt, torn down and rebuilt by Gentiles. And then finally, about 20 years before Jesus showed up on the scene, Herod, yes, King Herod, that guy, built the temple, rebuilt the temple for the good of the Jewish people. It was a, it was a gesture on his part, because if, if you didn't know this, you read Jewish history, those hundreds of years between uh, Malachi and, and the beginning of Matthew, um, the Jewish people rebelled a lot, and they were a pain in the side of Rome constantly. And so Herod was like, maybe if I build him this temple, they'll, you know, they'll kind of be happy and, and that'll be a good gesture. So he rebuilt this temple and this is the temple Jesus walked into. And and Jerusalem, if you can imagine, uh, Jerusalem at this time, uh, there was a population of around 80,000 people, but during the festivals, like Passover, it grew to three or 400,000 people. So you can imagine, this isn't even Boston, this is an ancient city. They don't have high rises, right? Like, ancient city, crowded, a lot of people per square, square mile, and they are packed in there. And Jesus walks, out, walks in and, <clears throat> and he sees all these pilgrims, right? As he, you can imagine him walking up onto the temple mount and all these pilgrims are there from all over the uh, uh, empire, all over the, the um, uh, region. Some of them had traveled for days to get there for this festival. And he walks in and he sees in the temple courts, these, these money changers. He he walks in and it looks like a livestock festival, like an expo, right? If you've ever been to a state fair, I know that's a new experience maybe for some of you, uh, but if you ever get a chance to go, I'd encourage you to go. It's a very unique experience, um, but they have like a, a, a livestock section where you walk into this giant expo center room and it is an interesting experience and smell, sensory experience. Uh, It's noisy, it's smelly, like there's animals everywhere. And this is what Jesus approaches. Now, every male living within 15 miles of Jerusalem was required to be there. And if they were over 19, they had to pay the temple tax. So you had these multiple things at work. They were to pay a temple tax and they were to offer a sacrifice for the Passover. The problem is anybody traveled with animals, (laughs) especially for like, 20 miles or something, a 20-mile walk, what if this morning on your, uh, you had to walk two miles to Koa, but instead of just coming, you had to carry two pigeons and a goat with you, right? And you had to carry the food for them and the water for them. You're not going to so much do that. So the idea was, when you get to Jerusalem, uh, the, the religious leaders, temple complex people said, let's provide, let's provide some animals, provide some animals for them to buy, and we will exchange their foreign money to local money so that they can make the temple uh, offering and tem- pay the temple tax. And so that's why these things were happening. The problem with this is that it wasn't, uh, it didn't, the, the animals, for example, had been sacrificed, uh, animals had been sold for a long time over in the Kidron Valley, uh, just over the hill from the Temple Mount. So you would first go there, buy your animal, and then go to the temple. But now, it's in the temple. They're in the temple, and the money changer, and they're charging crazy prices. So, like, you can just imagine that the <laughs> they've got you, right? You didn't bring your animals, and you get there, and you got to buy their animals. And their animals cost five times as much as your animal did. And the temple tax, is like, you know, it's like that crazy ATM fee where you, you, you're, you went somewhere and you're like, they're like, oh, we only take cash, but we have an ATM machine out here that charges $20 for every dollar you get out or something. And you're like, this is, this is insane. I'm, I'm paying money to get my money, right? Um, And so if you've ever been to Disney World, I talked about Disney last week. Um, If you've never been to Disney, eat a lot before you go. And stuff like protein bars in your pockets for your kids before you go there. Because you get in there and it's like, um, you know, your family of four gets, you know, four hamburgers and french fries and drinks and that'll be $200. You're like, what? But what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? It's not like there's another place there. It's Disney World. And so you end up having to pay what they Pay. This is what Jesus sees. Sees. So you can imagine these humble pilgrims. Some of them had given up their their, their livestock or their, their fields that they tended to, or had someone else take care of it. They head into the city. They're trying to come to worship God in the temple. And instead of being able to walk into the temple and have an experience with God, there's animals everywhere and they have to go buy an animal. They have to pay a crazy price. Then they have to trade their money up and lose a bunch of money doing that just so they can worship God. You can see why Jesus was angry. Jesus doesn't seem, well, look at verse 15, and making a whip of cords, which by the way, I, I, I just read over that so quickly. It's like, that wasn't fast. You know, Jesus is in the temple and he's kind of like, okay, I'm going to do something here. I need to, let's see, what am I, okay, I'm going to see something over here. And, you know, and he's just grabbing pieces and, you know, his disciples are like, what are you doing, Jesus? And he's like, oh, you'll see, you know, <laughs> and he's like putting this thing together and he's making it. I don't know if he like had duct tape, you know, like just wrapping it up to, to, to do that or what, but like he, he made it while he was there and then drove out it says he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables and he told those who were sold who sold the pigeons take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade now again jesus doesn't seem to object to the idea that people would buy an animal that they wouldn't travel with their own animal they would buy an animal But he did not want it there. What he was really upset about was how people had subtly given into convenience over conviction. It made more sense to have the animals in the temple court, right? I mean, let's be honest. Like, let's just look at this objectively. It made absolute sense. They were close by. The people didn't even have to walk across the valley with the animal. They was right there. That's where they were going. Why would we sell it to them over there make them walk over here when we could sell it to them over here? And the money changer, you know, people needed to trade out their money. Why, Why make them go somewhere else? We'll just have it right here in the temple. Convenience had overtaken conviction. Folks had allowed things that had seemed convenient and even loving to make it easier to worship God. And in doing so, they overshadowed the glory of God. And no doubt, if they had asked the folks, if you asked these money changers, you asked these merchants, hey guys, hey, um, like, why are you doing this? Why did you do this? And they would give you 10 reasons why this makes great sense. The problem is they were violating God's commandment for the sake of their convenience. Caroline Cobb on the Gospel Coalition wrote a blog about this, and she said, The cleansing of the temple was an indictment of empty religious activity, lip service, and fruitless ritual. And know we're all sitting here saying, Well, praise God, that's not me. Really? You never come in here and just sing the song, right? You never come in here and just sort of mindlessly let your brain wander while, while I'm preaching, you never go to community group and phone it in, right? You're just there, blah, 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 answering questions, thinking about other things. Let's face it, we are all, we've all given into convenience over conviction. We've all given into convenience over conviction, but Jesus is passionate about pure worship, not only because God deserves it, which, which we admit, right? The, the temple existed, As beautiful as it was, it was a tiny glimpse of any glory that God had. God's glory is so much more beautiful than the temple was. But the temple existed so that people could get a taste of God's glory. And we do not live in light of God's glory all the time, do we? We allow our convictions to give into convenience. Be honest with God today, What's crowded out your worship? Maybe some ambition in your life? Maybe a new priority? Maybe a relationship or a job? I think the Jesus that cleansed the temple would ask every one of us to ask that question of ourselves today. What is it that has gotten in the way? What convenience that seemed to make sense? It seemed reasonable. But has gotten in the way of you fully glorifying him. But not only did Jesus do this because God's glorious, but he also did it because it's for our good. You know, your greatest good today is to live for God's glory, your greatest good is to have your heart so enthralled with God that nothing else can steal your joy or your peace that you are so caught up with God's glory that your identity is secure so you're not killing yourself at your job to get it. Your heart is so caught up with God as your deepest joy and deepest pleasure that you don't have to endlessly pursue pleasure and distraction. So Jesus is passionate about our pure devotion. The second thing I want us to see here is that Jesus desires an open way for the lost to know God. I don't want you to be thrown off by the word lost. It's it's not a derogatory term. How many of you have been lost at some point in your life? Is that an indictment on your moral character? Are you an awful, evil, terrible person because you were lost at some point? No, Jesus uses the term lost and it is actually a term of endearment. He speaks about... he says that he had seek to save, seek, uh, came to seek and to save the lost. And then he tells a story of love and deep affection for the lost son in Luke 15. The lost son, also known as the prodigal son. And then the lost sheep, right? The shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one of them is lost. What does he go do? He goes and looks for that one. And then the parable of the lost coin. So when I use the word lost, it's not a derogatory word. It, it simply means a person who doesn't yet know God. They don't know where they are. They don't know where they stand. And most importantly, they don't know that God really loves them. They don't know what Jesus has done for them. So in essence, being oriented to your creator, that's what lost means. If you read our passage today, you might wonder where this comes in. And there's a couple of signs here that I want you to miss. Uh, the first is, and, and the Jewish readers, people in the first century would have totally gotten us, but... I don't we, no there is no temple today, and so we can't go visit it, so i can't tell you but there is a uh, <clears throat> there's a scale model I think it was thrown up on the screen a minute ago, but throw up on the screen again here in um, the scale model of of the uh, temple, you can see this this interior like rectangular wall that surrounds kind of the building right that that is the um the whole thing is called the temple mount, but that is the actual what would be described as the temple, even though many use the term to describe the whole thing. Up to this wall, this little uh, wall that went around the building itself, the low wall that was followed by steps up onto the the main complex in the middle, that was where the, the Gentiles had to stop. By penalty of death, they could not go further. So out here in these big open areas, you can see on this side, just part of it, but then on the other side of that big open area, that was full of cattle and sheep and money changers. And that's the court of the Gentiles. That's where those who did not belong to God yet, who did not know God, who were come there to pray, come there to seek God, to come from other nations to experience God. That's where they were worshiping. So you can see Jesus's concern here. Leon Morris, uh, another great commentator of John his commentary is about that thick he said, "For any Gentile, he came up to the temple to worship. It meant that prayer had to be offered in the middle of a cattle yard and money market. How are they supposed to come to know God? Do you see how the Gentile, the Jewish people of this time had allowed convenience to crowd out the opportunity for people to even hear the word of God? They were so consumed with themselves, so consumed with what they wanted, so consumed with what made sense for them. They had no space for other people who did not yet know God. And when you couple this with the other parallel accounts from the gospels, other gospels, um, Mark 10, Jesus actually says And when he cleanses the temple, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That's a quote from Isaiah. You see, in the Old Testament, God had a vision that, that Israel would not exist for themselves. They would exist as a nation to shine the light of God to the nations. That people who were far off would be able to come near. And the court of the Gentiles was the place that they were to be able to go. But they could not get in. And you and I can do the same thing today. We can become indifferent to those who are lost. We can focus on what we want and forget about the lost. We don't consider how someone who walks into here on a Sunday for the first time in any, to go to any church that they've ever been to And they don't know anything. They don't know anyone. They don't know what they're supposed to do. And it is a huge act of faith for them to even come into this the worship of the people of God. And we're over here just jabbering with our friends the whole time. We don't see them. We don't welcome them. We don't engage them. We don't create space for them. Oh, we're glad you're here. Just find a spot. Right? That's not the picture of Jesus welcoming us or uh, inviting us and so calling us to invite others. There was an Atlantic article this summer that was really interesting, uh, misunderstood reason why millions of Americans have stopped going to church. And after talking about the upwardly mobile, busy, anxious culture that we live in, the author says this, the tragedy of the American church is that they've been so caught up in the same world that we now find uh, we, that we now find they have nothing to offer those suffering people that can't be more easily found somewhere else. American churches have too often been content to function as a, va- as a kind of vaguely spiritual NGO, an organization of detached individuals who meet together for religious services that inspire them, provide practical life advice, or po- offer positive emotional experiences. Too often, it has not been a community that, through its preaching and living, bears witness to, to another way to live. The difficulty is that many of the wounds and aches provoked by our current order aren't of a sort that can be managed or life-hacked away. They're resolved only by changing one's life, by becoming a radically different sort of person belonging to a radically different sort of community. That's what we're supposed to be. We don't have a temple. And I'm glad we don't. Actually, I, I used to like really long for a building for Koa, and God gave us this, like a small office building we own, and I'm grateful for that. But I used to like, really think, oh, that's the marker. That's success. I actually think the fact that we don't own a building keeps us from identifying with a building. The church is the people in this room. Not, not where we're, not the physical structure we're in. And so we are the ones who create the open courts. We are the ones who invite the lost in. We are the ones that create space for people who are far off to come near and learn about God and experience God's love. Third point here in Jesus' passion for our devotion, he desires we believe in him as the new temple of God. Jesus never ever did a public action performed a miracle without trying to teach something, without trying to show something, without trying to reveal something. So it was never, we'll get into this more as we get into more of his miracles in John, but it was never simply about a raw display of power, right? And, and, and I, I'm going to give you a clue on that real fast. That's the, I used to think, and this is because I, I did grow up in church. I wasn't following God until college but, uh, and didn't become a Christian until college. But um, I, I grew up in church. And I remember hearing these stories of Jesus' miracles. And I remember being asked sometimes, why did Jesus do these miracles? Well, Jesus needed to show he was the Messiah, right? He needed to show this, that he was God in human form. Yes. But let's face it. If that was all he needed to do, he could have flown up over the Sea of Galilee, shot, shot lasers out of his eyes, and made a 747 show up. Every person in eyeshot would have fallen on their faces and worshiped him him as God. But he didn't do that. Every miracle he does reveals a little bit about who God is and about what kind of kingdom Jesus is ushering in. So even this action of cleansing the temple is meant to show that the temple is passing. The temple is passing away. Listen to what he says in verses 18 and 19. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, remember John said, John, we, introduce, we were introduced to the signs last week, right? The sign of the wedding, at the, the making of the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. This is the second sign. Signs are, are meant to point to something. Uh, so John loves using these to help us to see the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. Now, you and I would have been just as confused as the religious leaders as you're standing in the temple and Jesus says, tear the temple down and I will build it up. Picking up verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus It came to enter the temple, to cleanse the temple, but also to show that the temple was incomplete. It was never meant to be the final place of heaven and earth meeting. The ancient temple had fallen short of its purpose over and over and over and over, and now had become a place of exclusivity, a place of injustice, a place of greed. And now in this passage, Jesus points to his own body and says, my body is the temple. I am God come to earth. You remember what he told Nicodemus, or not Nicodemus, uh, Nathaniel at the end of chapter one, you will see angels ascending and descending on the son of man, heaven and earth will meet. Jesus is saying, I am that spot. I'm where heaven and earth overlap. And wherever I am, there the temple is. And then it says the disciples believed in this after the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is not a sign that Jesus did. It's the sign. It's the big E on the eye chart of Christianity. If you're, if you're exploring Christianity, if you've come in here today wanting to understand and, and, and learn what Christianity is ultimately about, it is not about, it's not about all the miracles that you're thinking about in scripture. It's not about Noah's ark. It's not about these things. It's ultimately about the resurrection. It's ultimately about coming to see, ask the question, did Jesus rise? And exploring the answers to that question. Because if you understand that Jesus rose from the grave and you experience new life, then you have eternal life with Jesus. And all of a sudden, his other miracles don't seem like a very big deal. I'll be honest with you. I don't struggle with any of his miracles. Why? Because I believe a dead guy came back to life, right? And he's not dead now. He came back to life with an eternal body. That settles it. Whatever that guy says, <laughs> whatever he did, he wins. And that's why we call Jesus Lord. That's why Christians follow him and submit to him and obey him and try to live for him because we believe he is living today. The temple was the place where God dwells with his people. That's Jesus. The temple was the place where sin was atoned for. That's Jesus. The temple was the place where people came to worship God. That's Jesus. The temple was the place where the priest interceded for the people of God. That's Jesus. And as if that wasn't enough, and that's a lot, The New Testament, Jesus goes on. We'll see this a little bit later in John 15, 16. He says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity of whom I am one with and the Father is one with, and I'm going to send him and he will be in you. Which means what? Where's the temple now? You. Listen to what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price to glorify God in your body. I wanna make this very personal as we close. (coughs) Excuse me. You are the temple. And John tells us that Jesus knows that he actually, in the next couple of verses, he says, he knows everything that's in man. He never trusts himself to man because he knew what was in man. He knows what's in you today. He knows what's in you just like he knew what was in the temple when he walked in the door. He saw it. It was plain to him. It was clear. And I had a question like arise in my heart this week. And I'll be honest, I struggled with it. This is the question. I want you to consider it for yourself. What if Jesus today were to offer to make you perfectly devoted to him in every area of your life, completely holy in all your words, thoughts, and actions, completely holy and never again to go back today, right now, in this moment, for the rest of your life. And it would, it would impact every area of your life, how you spend your free time. Now you're serving people more. Now you're praying a lot more. Now you're in the word a lot more. How you would be meek and gentle in all your relationships, even with those who hate you and hurt you and abuse you. Those who disagree with you, those on the other side of the political aisle, you will all of a sudden be meek and gentle with. It would affect what we give our attention to, news, sports, social media, YouTube, Netflix. It would affect what we give our money to. All of a sudden, you become the most radically generous person you know. That means there's not much left for you. There's not a lot left for you to spend on what you want to spend it on. As I thought through this week, I was like, "What would dis- how, how much would Jesus disrupt my life if he came in and cleansed the temple of my life right now? For me, never to go back. And I, and I'll be honest, I was a little overwhelmed. I was like, Oh, I got to think about that. And I got to think about that over there and that thing and what you know. But I, but I, and I don't want you to get overwhelmed because if you're like me, you are a little like, Oh, there's a lot of things probably Jesus be really touching on and pulling on that and moving that. I just want you to ask one question. What is the one thing he would cleanse today that you know, you know, he would walk in and he'd flip over that table in your heart? That's what he wants to do today. Because the good news is he's actually promised to do the rest of it over your lifetime until he meets you face to face. But we cooperate with him, we participate with him when we invite him in to cleanse. What's that little sin that you've allowed in and become complacent about? What ways are you making Jesus' teaching a little more convenient or a little bit more comfortable for you or others? How has your worship become polluted? I'm going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes and just take a few moments to have that conversation with God. Invite Jesus to come in, even as he came into the temple. Invite him. He lives there, but invite him in anyway. Jesus, we thank you that you love us enough to not let polluted worship go on. You want our pure devotion, our pure joy, our pure peace in you. And so we invite you come into the space that belongs to you. We are your temple, our hearts, our lives, our bodies belong to you. Come do those hard things in us that need to be done. that We might love you more fully. We might love others more fully. We might live for you more fully. us to come before you, not in fear and shame and guilt, but knowing you have come for our good. So take that thing, Jesus, that is keeping us most from you.